0: you would, at this time, go ahead and take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter number 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. going to be in the Old Testament most of the night tonight. And uh, and once you find that, if you would join me in standing for uh, the reading of God's Word out of respect and reverence for uh, the Holy Word of God. 1 Samuel chapter 30. We'll read... Just the first six verses, and uh, we'll look at others in this passage, uh, in this chapter. But First Samuel chapter number 30, verses 1 through 6, verse 1 says, "...came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day, that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, and smitten Ziklag, and burned it with fire." and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Let's pray one more time. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the lessons we can learn from this passage. And I pray, Lord, that you would guide us into all truth as we look at this passage. Help us, Lord, to put the distractions of this life away from us so that we might zero in and focus in on what you have for us tonight. Help us to be good hearers. And then again, help us to apply and do what we hear tonight. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Difficulties, challenges, trials, suffering, problems, you name it, they're a part of life, aren't they? I read this week a testimony from someone who shared a story about their sister. They said, while assembling their new waterbed, my sister Betty and her husband Everett realized that they would need a hose to fill this waterbed. So Everett dashed to the hardware store and bought one. They attached it to the bed, ran it through the apartment to the kitchen tap, and left to wait for the bed to fill. About an hour later, they checked on its progress. And that's when they discovered Everett had bought a sprinkler hose. No fun. Like it or not, trials are a fact of life. And as they say, many times when it rains, it pours. Sometimes trials seem to keep stacking on top of each other, don't they? One right after another. James in the New Testament instructs us to count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That's usually the last thing anyone wants to do when they go through a trial is to say, I'm going to count this for joy. And yet that's what James tells us to do. David, the main character of our text in this, this evening, admitted in Psalm 34 and verse 19, he said this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. So there's going to be trials. There's going to be difficulty. And it was our dear Savior who gave this promise. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. And then he promises this, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. It's been said that you're either just getting out of a valley, currently in one, or just about to walk into one. Not to discourage anybody tonight, but that's usually the case. In 1 Samuel chapter number 30, we find David about ready to walk into the most difficult valley of his life up to this point. But before we get to the specifics of his valley, I'd like for just a few minutes tonight, and I don't want to belabor this, and I do want to just mention this, that that the introduction is actually going to be probably the longest part of the message. So, so don't get too nervous, all right? But I'd like to put this, this chapter into context and, and, and do a little reverse here. Um, push the reverse button and, and get some context as to what uh, where we're at in 1 Samuel chapter number 30. So we're going to give a little background to get us back up to speed. So if you take your Bible and go back to First Samuel chapter number 8... And we're going to just kind of quickly go through this. I'm not going to go through it verse by verse or even chapter by chapter. I just want to kind of get the gist of where we're at, what's happening. First um, Samuel chapter number 8, this is a very sad passage of Scripture. In uh, verse number 5, um, actually in verse number 4, pick it up here. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and to Ramah and said unto him, Behold, Thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. God's plan for Israel was that he would be the king throughout their whole history. And yet, that's not what Israel wanted. They wanted a king to be just like everybody else. They wanted to wear the Nikes just like all the other cool kids did in their class. Uh, They wanted to be just like everyone else, and so they also wanted a king. Well, in verse number 6, let's keep reading here, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel began to bring this to the Lord. And in verse number 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And uh, basically said, look, if you want a king, this is what it's going to require. It's gonna, you're going to need to pay taxes. You're going to uh, need to give some of your family members to serve the king and, and uh, to have a military might and all that. You're gonna have to, it's going to cost you to have a king. Well, after all of it's said and done here in verse number 19, jump down there, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, nay, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Uh, They no no longer wanted to live by faith. They wanted to live by sight at this point. And so they desired a king. Well, God, of course, gave them their king in chapter number 9 and verse number 1. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of... Um, Bekorath, the son of all these sons, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. And so we're introduced to Saul here. And uh, we all know that Saul eventually becomes king in chapter 10, verse 1. So kind of a little history lesson, but we're fast forwarding we're going from that point down back to chapter thirty. so bear with me for a few more minutes uh, chapter 10 verse one then Samuel took a vial of oil, poured it upon his head, and kissed him, and said is not is, is it not because the Lord hath appointed thee anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance and so here at this point in chapter 10 verse one Saul has been anointed as the king of Israel, the very first king of Israel. Well, Saul reigns as king and then eventually begins to rebel against God. If you go over to uh, verse chapter 15, chapter 15, and verse number 2. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy What's the next word in that for those who are there? All that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And so that was the uh, charge that God gave to Saul. Well, Saul knew better than God because, you know what, we're going to need some sacrifices for the Lord. And and uh, anyway, we go down to verse number seven. Here's what happened. Small smote the Amalekites from Hevelia until thou comest to Shur, that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and, re- and refuge that they destroyed utterly. They kept all the the goods for themselves. Well, we go down here and uh, it's pretty interesting what happens here in verse 10. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. It grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. It was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he hath set him A place gone down and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Oh, did he now? He is acting pretty spiritual. And I love this next verse in verse 14. Samuel said, Oh, really? Well, can you explain then the bleeding of the sheep and the mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Can you you tell me, Saul, why I hear all these animals in the distance? Why in the world would I be hearing those if you did indeed perform the commandment of the Lord? And then Saul begins to try to justify his actions and justify his disobedience. And ultimately, uh, verse number 26, trying to go really quick through this. Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. So Samuel gives him the very bad news that your days are numbered, my friend, of being king. Well, God chose a replacement, a young shepherd boy named who? David in chapter 16. That's what chapter 16 is all about. We won't go through that whole chapter. Chapter 17, we... We read the very famous story of David facing Goliath and defeating him through the power of the Lord. As a result of this historic victory, David's fame and popularity immediately skyrocketed. He was the talk and even the song of the town in chapter number 18, verse number 6. It came to pass as they came when David was returned from the... Slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played, and said, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Well, that was like number one song on iTunes for a while. And you know what, who never downloaded that song? Saul. He hated that song. And he began to hate David as well. Verse number 8, Saul was very wroth, and a saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. From that point on, he became extremely insecure and extremely jealous. Saul's insecurity and jealousy got so bad that he attempted to kill David several times. He went on long, elaborate missions with his men to, for the sole purpose of ending David's life. Twice, David had the opportunity to kill Saul. Saul was right there sleeping, and David could have just... One little... Push, Saul's life would have been gone. Once in chapter 24, and once in chapter 26 neither time, obviously, did he take advantage of those opportunities. In chapter 25, just going quickly here through this, chapter 25, David adds a second wife named Abigail. In chapter 27, David gets sick and tired of dealing with Saul and runs away from his troubles. If you look at chapter 27, verse number 1, and you can tell we're almost back to chapter 30 but it's giving us an idea of what's happened here. Uh, 27 verse 1, David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hand. He said, I'm, I'm kind of done with running, this this running. and..." and worrying about Saul is driving me nuts, I'm going to just go back to the Philistines, and Saul will leave me alone if I just go over there. So David ends up living in the land of the Philistines, which, by the way, is a heathen people. He should not have done that. That was the wrong response, and yet he did do that, and he lived there for 16 months in a city called Ziklag. Oh, Ziklag, wasn't that read in the passage we started with? Yes, Well, in chapter 28, the Philistines gathered their armies to fight against Israel. And believe it or not, David and his men were enlisted to join the Philistines. You remember that when he faced Goliath, he was a Philistine. And now David is yoking up with the enemy. It's pretty remarkable. David finally agrees and promises his loyalty. Chapter 28, verse 1. came to pass in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for warfare and to fight with Israel. And Achish said unto David, Know thou assuredly that thou shalt go out with, with me to battle thou and thy men? And David said to Achish, Surely thou shalt know what thy servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore I will make thee keeper of mine head forever said, you're going to be my personal bodyguard. So David agreed and, and, and forms an allegiance and, and uh, pledges allegiance to uh, this Philistine army as they are going to battle against Israel. Amazing. Well, chapter 29, we find out that Achish, uh, this man here, he was the Philistine prince he finally ends up telling David to go home because the other leaders didn't quite trust David. They said, you know what? This doesn't sit well with us having David and his men. They're a little sketchy because of who they are. I don't really trust them as we go into battle. I think they're going to turn on us. We don't want them on our team. Send them back home. And so that brings us to chapter 30. So thanks for bearing with me. That brings us to chapter 30. So David and his men start going back home, which is in Ziklag, again in heathen territory. And uh, his men came home back to Ziklag and here's what they found in verse number 1 of chapter 30. It came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag, and burned it with fire. So they realized that while they were gone, the Amalekites had come in and invaded their their hometown. And so in the story, as we're going to discover here, the going got tough for David in a bad way. And uh, certainly, we're all going to go through times when the going gets tough for us as well. It's not a matter of if the going gets tough, it's when the going gets tough. And so, as we look in this story here, I want us to see, first of all, David's problems. David's problems. David experienced, I mean, talk about a bad day. David had a bad day, and he he experienced many problems all at once. Uh, Solomon was correct when he wrote to his son Rehoboam in the book of Proverbs. He said, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. All of us are going to wake up tomorrow expecting tomorrow to be a great day. And hopefully it is, but none of us are guaranteed that it's going to go just the way we want it to. And that was the case for David. I'm sure when he got up that morning to head back to Ziklag, he thought, okay, we'll get back and, you know, my wife can cook me a home-cooked meal, you know, um, some homemade rolls and maybe some good dessert and a big thick ribeye cooked medium. It It was last the last Sunday night I preached, I preached about a ribeye steak, and so I got to keep the keep the keep it going, you know. But that's not at all what happened, of course. There was no ribeye waiting for him. There was no, you know, peach cobbler waiting for him. There was nothing like that. He just saw a charred city that was once his own. Now this uh, truth has been illustrated. So well, as we look at our country and and see some of the natural disasters that have taken place, the hurricanes, the tornadoes. I mean, I'm preaching in Moore, Oklahoma tonight, where it was just six brief years ago when we experienced a tremendous storm that leveled much of our city. Uh, Behold, thou boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. And so David experienced great problems. Well, what did he experience? He experienced first of all, he experienced property loss. Again, in verse number one, Ziklag was burned with fire. In verse number three, David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire. Uh, there's a lot of people all over this country, and uh, there was a really bad fire not a couple a couple years ago in California, and You know, there's something in every state, right? When we were telling people we're moving to Oklahoma, they're like, ooh, tornadoes. When we were in Montana, it was like, ooh, the fires. In California, it's ooh, the earthquakes. When it's in, uh, you know, New Orleans, it's ooh, the hurricanes, and ooh, the flooding. And it's anywhere, there's going to be potential problems. And uh, I know that... uh, if we hang on to the things of this world and that's our source of joy, we're holding on to the wrong thing. Right. Uh, I read a story about William Carey, and, and after he was well established in his uh, pioneer ministry, uh, missionary work in India, his supporters in England sent a printer to assist him in his in his work. Well, soon the two men were turning out portions of the Bible for distribution. Carey had spent many, many years learning the language so that he could produce the scriptures in the local dialect there in India. He also had prepared dictionaries and and grammar books for the use of his successors. One day while Carey was away, a fire broke out and completely destroyed the building, the presses, many Bibles, and the precious manuscripts, dictionaries, and grammars. When he returned and was told of the tragic loss, He showed no sign of despair or impatience. Instead, he knelt and thanked God that he still had the strength to do the work over again. He started immediately, not wasting a moment in self-pity. Before his death, he had duplicated and even improved on his earlier achievements. Amazing. (coughs) How do you react when you experience property loss? How do you React when you uh, lose something that is material that belongs to you. When someone breaks that, this never happens in our home. Nothing in our home ever breaks. Uh, is that true, kids? That's not true. Yeah, we had several glass glasses that you drink out of. We had several glasses that you drink out of. Um, but we no longer have many of them because they have broken over the course of the months. And if we get too attached to them, I'm telling you, your source of joy is in the wrong place. So he experienced property loss, but then he he also experienced personal loss. Look in verse number (coughs) 2. And had taken the women captives that were therein they slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city. Behold, it was burned with fire. Their wives, their sons, their daughters were taken captives. I mean, you burn down my house, that's one thing, but you take my wife, my kids. Buddy, you're on dangerous territory, right? I think all of us would feel the same way. And uh, David was experiencing that, and not only him, but all the men that were with him. <coughs> his family was taken from him, and certainly Job knew what that was like, right? And one day had his family taken away from him, his wealth, and uh, in a very short amount of time, his, his health and uh, wealth and his family all, and his property was all gone, and even his own wife turned on him. And if you've ever lost a loved one, you understand the difficulty. Maybe you've lost a grandparent or a parent. Some of you have lost a spouse. Maybe even some have lost a child. And you know the personal loss that comes into somebody's life when the going gets tough. Um, That's what David was experiencing. Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer, <clears throat> and businessman in Chicago with a lovely family, a wife, Anna, and five wonderful children. However, they were not strangers to tears and tragedy. The year, their young son died with pneumonia in 1871. And in that same year, much of their business was lost in the great Chicago fire. Yet God in His mercy and kindness allowed the business to flourish once again. While well, on November 21st, 1873, the fresh... French ocean liner, Ville du Havre, was crossing the Atlantic from the U.S. to Europe with 313 passengers on board. Among the passengers were Mrs. Spafford and their four daughters. Although Mr. Spafford had planned to go with his family, he found it necessary to stay in Chicago to help solve an unexpected business problem. He told his wife he would join her and their children in Europe a few days later. His plan was to take another ship. About four days into the crossing of the Atlantic, the Ville du Harvard collided with a powerful iron-holed Scottish ship, the Erne. Suddenly all those on board were in grave danger. Anna hurriedly brought her four children to the deck. She knelt there with Annie, Margaret Lee, Bessie, and Tanetta and prayed that God would spare them if it could be His will or to make them willing to endure whatever awaited them. Well, within approximately 12 minutes, the Ville du Havre slipped beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic, carrying with it 226 of the passengers, including the four Spafford children. A sailor rowing a small boat over the spot where the ship went down spotted a woman floating on a piece of the wreckage. It was Anna, still alive her into the boat, and they were picked up by another large vessel, which nine days later landed them in Cardiff, Wales. From there she wired her husband a message which began, Saved alone, what shall I do? Mr. Spafford later framed the telegram and placed it in his office. Another of the ship's survivors, Pastor Weiss, later recalled Anna saying, God gave me four daughters. Now they have been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. Mr. Spafford booked a passage on the next available ship and left to join his grieving wife. With the ship about four days out, the captain called Spafford to his cabin and told him they were over the place where his children went down. According to Bertha Spafford Vester, a daughter born after the tragedy, Spafford wrote, It is well with my soul while on this journey. And that song goes, When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. You know, the property loss was one thing for David and his men to experience, but this one, this personal loss, this one really hurt In fact, it hurts so bad that the Bible records in verse number 4, then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. Have you ever cried to the point where you can't cry anymore? When the tears are just not coming anymore? Because they're just... You've cried too much. David knows what it's like. Well, not only did he experience property loss and personal loss. He also experienced positional loss. In verse number 6, David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. Once the great mighty leader is now in danger of his life. Why? Because these, these guys were just so distraught, they needed to blame someone. They were so mad they had to take it out on someone. Someone had to suffer because of their suffering. And so they thought, David is the one that needs to pay. (coughs) Property loss, personal loss, and positional loss. No wonder he was greatly distressed, as the Bible says in verse 6. David was greatly distressed. Have you ever been greatly distressed? Of course, this begs the question, why? Maybe you've asked the question to God, Why? Why am I going through this time of loss? Why am I going through this difficulty? Now, why did God allow all of these problems in David's life? Was it because David had multiple wives? Could be. Was it because he lived in a heathen land and agreed to help them fight against the very nation he would soon be king over? Maybe. Maybe. God doesn't make us privy to why he allowed this trial in David's life. Now, when you think of, well, you, you think of Job and the trials he went through, and you go, I know why he did that. He was trying to prove a point to Satan. Well, he didn't really make it known to Job until much later on, and he didn't make it known to David why he allowed this trial in his life. It's natural to ask God why when you're going through a trial, but I would encourage you, don't wait too long for an answer. Because God actually doesn't always give us reasons for the difficult times He allows. And by the way, can I just be kind and say this with as much kindness as I can muster? He doesn't owe you an answer. He doesn't need to tell you why. You don't deserve a reason. I know we like to know, we like to see why God allows things in our lives, but God doesn't have to tell us. He's God and we're not. Isaiah 55 and verse number 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heaven are higher higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I read this quote here in Adversity we usually want God to do a removing job, right? We want God to remove the trial. We want God to remove the problem. So in adversity, we usually want God to do a removing job when He wants to do an improving job. To realize the worth of the anchor, we need to feel the storm. That's a good thought. So David experienced problems, and ones unlike he had ever experienced before. What would David do? Would he run away like he did in chapter 27? Would he just bail and just say, you know what, I'm going to run as fast as I can, and these guys can't catch me. It's not what he chose to do, though. This leads us to secondly and quickly tonight, David's prayer. Verse number 6. The end of verse 6 says, But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And then in verse number 8, David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? So here David goes to the Lord in prayer. He didn't run away. And he didn't turn to a friend or a spouse or to Facebook and say, What should I do, peeps? Facebook friends, what should I do? He didn't do that. He didn't Google the answer. And he couldn't even go to his spouse. Because his spouse was taken away. He probably wanted to turn to one of his spouses, uh, but he couldn't. They weren't there. And the men that he entrusted so much and he loved so much, they were now turning on him and speaking of stoning him. And he didn't try to find encouragement, by the way, in a change of circumstance either. Instead, he found his encouragement in the Lord, his God. You see, David came to the point when God was all he had, and I love this, and he found that God was all he needed. The same is true for all of us. If we lose everything like David did, as long as we have God, we really have all we need. Now, I realize that I love my wife, and I love my children, but should God decide to take them, would God be enough in my life? I hope the answer is yes. And I hope the answer is yes in your life. I do know that our families are precious and treasured, and, and, uh, and there's a rightful place for all of that, but, but we got to be careful not to elevate our family into an idol where they're more important than God. Right. And David got to the point where, God, you're really all I need. And he found that God was all he needed. Paul instructs us to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men, the Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I recently read a parable about two women who had gotten together to do laundry and some clothing repair work. As they talked about their lives, one said, Oh, my husband? Is so miserable. Nothing seems to go right at work, and he can't find anything good on TV. Our home is a place of disrepair. And when we go to the church, the song leader is terrible and the pastor is dumb. Don't worry, these are not members of Cornerstone Baptist Church. <laughs> but the other, who was a member of Cornerstone Baptist Church, replied, my husband is so excited. He, he can't wait to go to church. He loves the sermons and enjoys his job. We laugh all the time and enjoy our family time together. Well, after she said that, quiet descended on the room as the women continued working on their repairs. Then at the same time, they both noticed at which part of the garments they were repairing. The first woman was patching the seat of her husband's pants while the other was patching the knees. On the husband's pants. There's a powerful lesson in that story. The difference between those who are joyful and live a life of peace and those who do, not, who do not is not found in circumstances. All of us face troubles and trials as we go through life in a fallen, sin-filled world. The difference is eternal, internal, whether we gripe and complain and feel sorry for ourselves or whether we turn to God, praying in faith for His grace to face our trials. The peace of God is not a random feeling that comes and goes. It is a conscious awareness of His presence found as we spend time in His Word and in prayer. Too often, prayer is a last resort rather than our first response to a trial or challenge. I'm thankful for the example of David here who chose to go to God when he was going through some tough stuff. And notice that he found his encouragement in the Lord, His God. That little word, His, is so important. This is significant, as God was not just a distant God, but indicates that He had a personal, intimate relationship with His God. You see, God wasn't just the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, the Lord was David's God. It was going from, for God so loved the world, to the testimony of the Apostle Paul, when he said, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. It's like Solomon said in the Song of Solomon's, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. I belong to Him and He belongs to me. He's my God. Can I ask you, is He your God? Do you have a personal, intimate relationship with Him? Why should we go to the Lord our God for our encouragement? Well, He invites us to do so. He says in the book of Hebrews, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, so we obtain a mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is always available. He never has a bad day. And He is able to encourage and strengthen you, and He knows what encouragement you need. So we see that David found his encouragement in the Lord his God. This does beg the question, How does someone encourage themselves in the Lord? What does that look like? That's a great, wonderful expression, but how do I do that? While we're not given details about what went on in David's encouragement session with the Lord, here are some practical ways for us to encourage ourselves in the Lord during times of trial and difficulty. And I'm going to zip through these real quickly tonight. Number one, get right with God. James says, draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. If you're not right with Him, confess your sin. Get right with Him. Search me, O God, the psalmist said, David said later, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Get right with God. If there's something between you and your Lord, get it right. Get it settled. Stop goofing around with this. Stop procrastinating. Stop delaying this. Get right with Him. That's a sure way to encourage yourself in the Lord. Number two, focus on the blessings, not the blisters. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. When you're going through times of trial, it's important to focus on the blessings instead of just the blisters. And I know the blisters hurt, and they're screaming at you for your attention, but I'm telling you, there's other things that you can be thankful for in the times of trial. You may lose all earthly blessings, but you will never lose your spiritual blessings, which we learned about in our memory verse that we're going through this month. So focus on the blessings, not the blisters. Number three, remember the promises of God, 2 Peter 1.4, whereby are given unto us exceeding and great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of, of divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Remember the promises of God. I read a little poem that said, God has not promised skies always blue, flowers strewn pathways all our life through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, or peace without pain. But God has promised strength for the day. Rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, and undying love. Remember the promises of God. Number four, listen to godly music. Listen to godly music. Let godly music minister to your heart. When I'm going through times of stress and times of difficulty, I will do this, and it helps immensely. I can't help but think that David maybe used that as well. Because David, of course, a sweet psalmist of Israel, wrote most of the book of Psalms, which is a song book. I can't help but think maybe David went on and and took a walk and began to sing. Listen to godly music. Number five, consider God's character. Consider the fact that God never changes. He says, I am the Lord and I change not. And what is some of His character? Well, He's good. He's sovereign. He knows what's best for me and for you. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in Him. Allow the truth of who He is to cause you to trust Him during the trials. Number six, remember past victories. Think about the past victories that God has won in your life. Remember when David faced the giant, Goliath, and he thought back to the uh, past victories that the Lord had won in his life as the Lord delivered him from the bear and the lion. When you're going through a valley, think about how God brought you out of the last valley and that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Remember past victories. So practical ways to encourage yourself in the Lord. I just want to throw this last thought out before we move to the last thought. And by the way, the last point is super short. I promise um, I'd like to point out that David was encouraged before his circumstances changed. Some of you already know the story. Some of you know that, a little spoil alert, things turn out pretty good for David at the end of this chapter. But before any of that happens, David is encouraged in the Lord his God before that happens. And so I want to encourage you to encourage yourself in the Lord before circumstances change and whether or not they do change. David had no guarantee that he was going to get his family back. David had no guarantee he was going to get his big screen TV that these, uh, these jerks took from him. He had no guarantee he was going to get all this stuff back, but he was encouraged before that. You see, after some time with the Lord, David had a more heavenly perspective on his situation. He then inquired of the Lord in verse number 8 and received direction and guidance from God. Of course, he should have done that in chapter 27 before this mess ever took place, and he would have maybe been saved from all of this, but that's just speculation. Anyway, so David faced tremendous problems, and he chose to respond with prayer. Next we see, last thought, last page of notes, in case you're wondering. Number three, David's pursuit. And uh, we won't go through this whole thing. I would encourage you maybe even tonight, before you go to bed, maybe read through this chapter. It's pretty interesting at how it all happened. But I just want to say in verse number 17, point out a couple things here. David smote them from the twilight even on the evening of the next day. There escaped not a man of them, save 400 young men, which rode upon camels and fled. So God allowed David and his men to defeat the Amalekites, the ones who had stolen his family and all of his goods. Verse number 18, David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives, so he was reunited with his family. Verse number 19, there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil, nor anything that had taken to them, David recovered all. So they recovered all their possessions. In verse 23, then David then said David, You shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord hath given us. So he gave the glory back to God for all of this. David begins to pursue them, and God David, through the Lord's power and might, wins this great victory. It's all done. What a wonderful ending. And guess what? Just three short chapters later, once you know it, David becomes king of Israel. Someone has rightly said that the darkest hour is just before dawn. You may be walking through a dark, lonesome valley, but can I let you know that the sun is coming up? Joy comes in the morning. Keep pressing on, and whether you have tried to fill your waterbed with a sprinkler hose, or you feel like David in 1 Samuel chapter number 30, allow me to encourage you to encourage yourself in the Lord your God. When the going gets tough, and the going is going to get tough for you if it's not already going on right now, what's your response going to be? Is it going to be run away and escape or try to ask everyone? Encourage you, encourage yourself in the Lord your God. Let's pray together tonight. Lord, thank you for this story. Thank you for the opportunity to look at David's encouragement session with you. Help us, Lord, when we face times of difficulty, when we're greatly distressed, to encourage ourselves in the Lord our God. Lord, I need this message from time to time, and I suspect... Many of our church family needs this as well. Needs this reminder to not try to find the answers elsewhere, but to go to you first. Help us, Lord, to be much on our knees instead of on our backside. Help us, Lord, to go to you first and to make sure that we are encouraging ourselves in the Lord our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.